We are weak people, aren't we? We're weak people. I think Paul summarizes our weakness well in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says this of himself. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I don't know about you, but Paul's words summarize so much of my life very, very accurately. That much of my life can be described as I not doing what I actually want to do and I'm doing what I've said I hate to do and yet I find myself still doing it. Why? Because I'm weak. Because I'm weak in my flesh. Because I'm weak in this spiritual battle that I am fighting. For me, it applies, I guess, to about every area of my life. I can even think about the way that I eat and my health. I can say I want to take care of the body that God has given me and I want to eat things and discipline myself in a way that will bring him glory. And what is the very thing that I do? Fall right back into a bucket of fried chicken, right? I can say that I want to discipline myself and to take advantage of all the days that God has given me and all of the minutes that God has given me and redeem the time that I hate wasting my life and I hate wasting my time and yet what is my default? To stare at my phone or to turn on that box in my television and just numb my mind for hours on end. I can say that I hate the fact that I'm not sharing the gospel with my neighbors and not sharing the gospel with my friends and that I'm passionate and love expanding the kingdom of God and building the kingdom of God and spreading the glory of Christ. And yet, what is it I find myself so often doing? Cowering down as I see my neighbor in his yard. Yes, so much of my life is described as doing that which I hate to do and not doing that which I love to do. I am weak and I am struggling and the plight is not new with me. In fact, the Bible throughout the Old Testament especially lets us see all of our Hebrew, or all of our heroes in the Hebrews, <laughs> among the Hebrews, up close and personal, warts and all, so that we might realize that these are but mere men, weak men. But what is our saving grace, brothers and sisters? What is the saving grace of those heroes in the Old Testament? What is the saving grace of Paul himself? What is the saving grace for you and I in our profound weakness of the flesh? Our saving grace is that God is far mightier than we are. Our saving grace is that our God is not weak. Our God is not defined by weakness in any area of his character, in any one of his attributes, in any expression of his holiness. No, our God is profoundly mighty and profoundly powerful. The word that we have come to use is omnipotent in every way that one can be sovereign, in every way that one can be mighty, in every way that one can be powerful. So our God is. And it's this that Pentecost is about. This is what Pentecost is about. Pentecost is about weak people being filled with Almighty God to do that which only God himself is able to do. Pentecost is about infinite God filling up, 
finite vessels in you and I, clothing himself, himself with our life that we might live a life that is marked and counted and in fact impossible any other way. Today is the day that traditionally in the life of the church we have celebrated Pentecost. And what I mean by Pentecost, and what you're going to hear that a lot, what I mean by that in the New Testament sense is in the coming of the Holy Spirit. The word Pentecost is uh, actually the Greek word for, the, for 50. It means 50. And it was a celebration of an Old Testament feast, the Feast of the First Fruits, or the Feast of the Harvest, the Feast of Wheat, or the Feast of Weeks. The reason they often called it the Feast of Weeks was that it was the summation of a week's worth of weeks. That is, seven weeks that followed after the Passover. And it was in these seven weeks that they would bring in the wheat harvest. And culminating on the 50th day, after the seven weeks had passed, they would gather together in the temple and they would offer up to God the first fruits from their crops. And in offering up to God the first fruits of their crops, they would say, Oh God, how gracious you have been. Oh God, how well you have provided. Oh God, how merciful and kind you have been to me. Take this first fruit as evidence, as faith that we know you will provide for your children. As evidence that we know that you will take care of your people. And so the first fruits. The, the, the Feast of the First Fruits or the Feast of Pentecost was the acknowledgement of what God has done is only the mere first fruits of that which he is going to do. It is only the beginning of something far greater that God is yet to do. And as we move into Acts chapter 2 and we see the coming of the Holy Spirit 50 days after the crucifixion on the day of Pentecost, we are reminded yet again as the Spirit indwells the people of God that God is just getting started. This is in fact the first fruits of our deliverance. This is the first fruits of the creation being reestablished and being made new. And so brothers and sisters, let us go to Acts chapter two this morning and celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter two, we are immediately after the ascension of Christ. Jesus has been crucified. He has been resurrected. He has dwelled on earth for 40 days with his disciples. And now 10 days after that, he sends the one long since promised by the Father, long since promised by him to go and to indwell his disciples. So with that context, would you stand with me as we prepare to read the first 13 verses together? Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there, they were, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all the, these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? 
Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. Can you imagine what it must have been like that day? Place yourself among the 120 that had gathered in the same location to await the coming of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus ascended into heaven, as he gave to his disciples the, uh, the great commission that each of us are still fulfilling, he gave them the instruction to wait before they go out. Wait before you go out upon the coming of my Spirit, and when my Spirit has come upon you, then you will go out and be my witnesses, right? So imagine the scene in that house. The disciples at this time had been on a bit of an emotional roller coaster, we can say the least, right? All right, so, so Jesus, we know, had begun teaching them that he had to suffer many things, that he was going to be crucified, that there was going to be days of affliction, days of difficulty ahead. The disciples had often fallen in despair, sometimes spoke up and said, Jesus, we will fight for the death for you. We will lay down our lives to ensure that you go to the throne where you deserve. Then, what happened? The suffering actually happened. When the suffering came to be, as Jesus goes to the cross, all of the disciples proved that their claims of laying down their lives was nothing more than emotional bravado as they scatter and begin to deny Christ and abandon Christ in his moment of weakness. As Jesus lays in the tomb, the disciples despair, trying to figure out how they're going to pull their lives together, trying to figure out if they're going to be able to save their lives at all, having been identified with someone so heinously crucified as Jesus himself. But then three days later, three days later, they're all gathered and, 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 and Mary comes and she says, the tomb is empty, the tomb is empty. Peter goes and he confirms there's nobody in the tomb. In the upper room, Jesus appears to all of his disciples. They praise his name. Thomas puts his hands in the wounds of his Savior. They are filled with awe and astonishment and worship and praise that Christ has done the very thing that he said he would do. That not only has he suffered, but he has been delivered from the grave. He has risen yet again. And so for 40 days, they fellowship with him and they worship him and they enjoy him and they delight in him. And I'm sure it's filled with teaching and instruction and preparations for the days that are ahead. For 40 days, Jesus uh, uh, spends time with each of his disciples until ultimately he ascends to be enthroned and exalted at the right hand of the Father at the very place he should be all along. And for 10 days, they wait yet again. It's, it's unique that Jesus doesn't send the Spirit as soon as, at the same time that he ascends, isn't it? 
that he brings his disciples into a time of waiting once more, a time of, of faith once more in which they must trust that his promises are true, that they must trust that his word is in fact not going to return void. And then 10 days in, it happens. A wind, the Bible says. You can tell Luke scrambling for words to describe the scene that he was witnessing. Wind, rushing wind, sweeps across the house. It would have been a wind unlike any hurricane of tornado that you have ever heard. The word translated wind is a word that means a violent wind. No doubt it would have heard as though a freight train were running straight through the house. And as the wind swept across the house, each one of the disciples, all 120, are filled with the very presence of God himself. It says that it appeared to them as though there was a tongue made of pure fire over their heads, almost like a halo, representing the very presence of God, the speaking power of God, as we know God often makes himself known through fire in the Bible, right? It says that they begin to speak. Not just, hey, how you doing? But this group of Galileans who only know one native language begin to speak. And all of those gathered together, Jews from every nation, every tribe that they could have imagined, gathered around, likely in Jerusalem because of the Feast of First Fruits, begin to hear the gospel. They begin to hear the glories of Christ and the works of Christ and the salvation offered to them in Christ. They begin to hear it from these Galileans speaking in utterance that was so astonishing that each person, regardless of what corner of the earth they were from, whether Asia or Africa, whether they spoke Greek or Swahili, hearing it in their own native tongue, they were astonished and amazed. Critics from the outside looking in began to say, these men must be drunk. We have no other explanation to describe what they're saying and what we're hearing other than even though it's nine o'clock in the morning, these men must be lit. For those that are filled with astonishment and awe, they come together and they ask the question, What does this mean? What does this mean? What does this power that we are not only seeing, hearing, but experiencing, what does it mean? What does it mean that the nations are hearing the gospel in one voice? What does it mean that the tongues of fire are appearing over the disciples' head? What does it mean that the very presence of Christ has indwelt us? What does it mean? And that's the question that I want us to ask this morning. What does this mean? What does it mean that 2,000 years ago in this day of Pentecost, that the wind of the Spirit swept across the disciples of Christ and indwelt them? What does it mean when we say each one of us, if we are of a follower of Christ, identifying with those Christians or Pentecost are just as they were filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean? Now, it means a lot, okay? 
It means a lot of things. And I've wrestled and wrestled because I want to tell you what all of them are. And I don't even probably know all of them, but all the ones that I know, I just want to like just us hang out here for about six hours and just go through the glories of scripture. But y'all seem hungrier than that. All right. Y'all seem like y'all want to go to lunch sooner than that. So we're going to focus on two, two things that it means. And I think these are the things in the big picture. That these are the things that if we were to step back and say, okay, give me the overarching emphasis here. Give us the overarching uh, intention of this text and what the Spirit did in Pentecost. This is what I think we could boil it down to. All right, the first thing is this. Pentecost means that you can live the Christian life. Pentecost means that you can live the Christian life. It's no accident that the Spirit makes himself known here through the wind. This is not an accident. In fact, both the Old Testament word for Spirit, ruach, the Hebrew word, and the New Testament Greek word for Spirit, pneuma, both of those words mean also wind. And again, they mean like a violent wind. We're not talking gentle summer breeze from the beach against your face. Okay, we're talking about the the power of a thousand hurricanes. Okay, we're we're talking about the kind of power that would cause the mightiest tornado the world has ever known to tremble where it spins. In fact, I think this beckons us to go all the way back to the creation. All the way back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. The very second verse of all of scripture says this. It says that the spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. That it hovered over the formless creation. The dark and void void thing that God was about to make. Telling us that at the very beginning... As the Father gave utterance and the God, as, the, the, as the Father spoke forth, the wind of the Spirit with all of the violence and the power that is manifested within would come about to bring everything into the cosmos that you and I have seen. Every star and every mountain, every plant and every animal, every person, every child, every woman, every man, all of it brought together by the divine action of the Godhead Decreed by the Father, given through the Son, actuated by the Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, here's what I think it's teaching us from that. In Genesis 1, the Spirit creates. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit recreates. So we all know that in Genesis 3, the creation falls. Sin comes into the world and all of which God has made is now marred, marked by sin. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 2, the creation is so broken, so fallen, that it is almost as formless as it was in the beginning. It is almost as unrecognizable as when God had made it in the beginning in comparison to its Eden glory. But what is the Spirit to do? The Spirit has come to bring about the new covenant. The Spirit is the initiating force, the initiating first fruits by which God will make all things new, all of his church new, all of his creation new, until ultimately there is a new heaven and a new earth that I believe the glory of Eden will pale in comparison to. The Spirit has come to make all things new because the Spirit is the very power of God, able to do that which only God can do. 
And it is this power that has come now to indwell in the lives of his disciples, this creating, this recreating power of the Holy Spirit that has come into the lives of the people of God so that now they can do what they fundamentally could not do otherwise. You see, Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of a promise of God. We preached from Ezekiel 36 way back during Advent, if you'll remember. And what we said during Advent, and what Ezekiel 36 teaches us, is that the fundamental problem of man is not that we sin. The fundamental problem of man is that we are sinners. The fundamental problem of man is not that we are unholy. The fundamental problem of man is that we are incapable of holiness. That the problem that we have is not that we have disobeyed the law merely, that is certainly a problem, But the more fundamental problem is is that we are incapable of obeying the law, incapable of upkeeping what God has said. And so the Ezekiel 36 promises this. I read it before we started the service today. I will put my spirit in you. I will write my law on the tablet of your heart. I will break the hardness that I find them. I will take from you a heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh. I will cause you to be obedient. I will make you faithful. I will make that which is unholy to now be holy. I will bring about a transformation in the lives of my people that will overcome by my power, by my strength, by my recreating wind in your life to overcome the bounds of of the flesh that you experience, the oppression of sin on your life. That what we are seeing here is not just the fulfillment of John 14 and John 16. No, John 14 and John 16 were Jesus reiterating the very promises of God the Father from Ezekiel 36. This is a promise that has been given to us for as old as the people of God are. That we might have the Spirit so that we might have the ability to do the impossible. And do you know what the impossible is? To live a life that is pleasing to God. To live a life that is pleasing to God. You see, brothers and sisters, to live a a life that is in congruence with this Bible is an impossibility for you. It is an impossibility for you in your strength and in your wisdom and in your discipline and in your diligence it is an impossibility for you to obey this word in all of its, and every letter and in every spirit. It is an impossibility for you to obey it in attitude and in motivation and in action. The life that all of us keep calling you to, this life of a, being a disciple of Christ, this life of being a disciple maker for Christ, all of it is a fundamental impossibility for you. You are being called by the Bible, by your pastors, to an impossible life apart from the Spirit of God. Apart from the Spirit of God. God intervenes into his creation so that now the greatest power in all of the universe dwells in you that you might do the impossible. Brothers and sisters, can you just think about that for a second? The very voice that speaks and builds the Himalayas, the very one that brings about the greatest Parts of every galaxy that we cannot even begin to behold 
lives in you. In you. He dwells in you and he does not dwell in you so that you can just live an ordinary life. He does not dwell in you so that you can just do what you are able to do by your own wisdom and by your own strength. No, he lives in you because God does not just deliver you from your sin, but God transforms you into something useful in his kingdom. God transforms you so that you can now be actually holy, actually devoted, actually obedient, actually true, actually delightful and pleasing to him. This is the testimony of the book of Acts. This is the testimony of the book of Acts. Think about Stephen. How is it that Stephen is able to have rocks being thrown at his face and stand there and praise God's name? Praying for his executioners. It's impossible. Unless you are full of the Holy Spirit and God's word testifies that in Acts 7, Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. How is it that that John and Peter can go before the Sanhedrin? John and Peter are uneducated common men. The Sanhedrin recognizes them as such. The Sanhedrin would have been the greatest intellectual elites of their day. They would have been Harvard, Yale, Princeton educated. They would have been the brightest of the bright, knowing every letter of the law, articulate, able to debate, able to defend. And yet when John and Peter rebukes them to their face and calls them a stiff-necked people, they know that they are speaking with an authority that is greater than themselves. How are they able to do the impossible? They are full of the Holy Spirit. Paul and Silas, they're in a Philippian prison. Over the course of the night, the jailer falls asleep. The doors of the prison open. When morning comes, the jailer awakens and he realizes that the doors of the prison are are open and he's going to take a sword and he's going to impel himself. Knowing that the cost of his of his letting fall asleep on duty was going to be a gruesome one right before he impels himself with the sword paul cries out friend neighbor do not kill yourself do you not see that we are all still here what keeps a man in prison so that he can convert his jailer only the holy spirit only the holy spirit will call you and enable you and empower you to live a life so impossible as the one that christ has called you to live Only Pentecost can bring that kind of glory into a vessel as wicked as this one. Brothers and sisters, maybe the most glorious part of this whole passage is this phrase. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just Peter. Not just John. Not just the apostles. Not just those that had hands laid upon them. They were all, all 120, men and women, young and old, all of them filled with the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, you have the same Holy Spirit in you as Lottie Moon and William Carey and Billy Graham and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You have the same Holy Spirit in you as Peter and Paul and John and Silas. You have the Holy Spirit in you that Jonathan Edwards had and David uh, Brainerd had and Adoniram Judson had. You have the same Holy Spirit in you that the men in the Middle East have and the men in Africa have. The very presence and power of Almighty God dwells in you. You see, there is no Holy Spirit Junior for teenagers and kids. In 
there is no Holy Spirit light for regular church members. And there is no Holy Spirit 2.0 for pastors and missionaries. No, brothers and sisters, we are a royal priesthood. All of us indwelt by the Holy Spirit in the same proportion, saved to the uttermost, filled to the uttermost by the very presence and spirit of God. Should we not do something with it? If we are being so transformed as that, so filled as that, then God has made us as useful as that. So that we might live a life that is impossible in the eyes of the world. What are you doing right now in your life that is impossible by your own strength? What are you, how, what are you doing in your life right now that is impossible by your, without your own wisdom? What are you doing in your own life that if the Spirit of God does not show up and does not deliver and does not come through, you will fail? Iron City, I don't want us to be an ordinary church with ordinary people doing ordinary things. I want us to be a church planning church. I want us to be a world changing church. I want us to be an orphan feeding church. I want us to be an orphan adopting church. I want us to be a divine, supernatural church. I want us to be an unstoppable church. I want us to take up the mantle of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, young and old, boys and girls, men and women, and go to the edges of the earth with the glory of God and the supremacy of Christ, proclaiming what he has done. I want the people to be filled with awe and astonishment, astonishment, perplexed, saying, what do these people mean? Church, let's be tired of the ordinary here. I am. Let's be tired of the regular here. I am. Let us be awakened by the Spirit of God indwelling in us. Let us call the teenagers to do that which is impossible. Let us call our children to do that which is impossible. Let us call, call our empty nesters to do that which is impossible. Let us call our retirees and our young mothers and our young fathers to do that which is impossible. Your neighbors should be confused by your life. They should be confused by it. They should sit outside in a gathering of the HOA, hanging out saying, what is up with those people on the corner? They just keep bringing in kids, man. Every time I'm around them, they just seem happy. And I know their life ain't that easy. We should leave White Plains and Heflin and Honda, and, and the high school, utterly stunned, silent by the lives that we live, that they might see the glory of Christ in us. You have the spirit of almighty God in you. You can live the Christian life. You can do the impossible. Brothers and sisters, let us do it. Let us do it. Let us do it. If you're not scared, you're not trying. If you're not nervous, you're not stretching. Go to on a mission trip. Go across the street and share the gospel. Invite that brother or sister to lunch. Do it. 
Is this terrifying? Yes. But is the spirit of God in you? Yes. You have not been given a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have been given the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit himself testifies to our spirit that we are the children of God. Go. 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 So the first thing that Pentecost means is Pentecost means simply that you can live the impossible Christian life. The second thing, the other thing that I want to talk about this morning is that Pentecost means that you can take part in building God's kingdom. You can take part in building God's kingdom. Throughout the Old Testament, God promised a day of salvation would come. Over and again, throughout the prophets, throughout throughout. Uh, the history of Israel, as they fall into exile, as they fall into sin, as they fall into wickedness, God is always promising, but there is a day of salvation that awaits. There is a day of deliverance coming. There is a day in which I will reestablish the throne of David. There is a day in which I will make all things new again, and you will reign over all the nations. The day has come in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, just following our text, Peter's going to stand and he's going to deliver a Pentecost sermon. And in that sermon, he is going to start with the words of the prophet from Joel chapter 2. Let's read those words together. It begins in verse 17 of Acts chapter 2. He says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Underline everyone who is gathered this day. Is it just the people of Galilee? Is it just the people of Israel? No, brothers and sisters, it is the people of the nations. Move forward into Acts chapter 10. We see Gentiles being filled with the Holy Spirit. Those who were not even by birthright, the people of God, brought into the kingdom of God. We are seeing before our very eyes the fulfillment of what John the Baptist had said would come to pass, that though the kingdom has come and you will know the kingdom has come because they will baptize in spirit and fire. What have we seen? The spirit filling them, the fiery tongue laying above them. The prophecy has come true. The old has gone. The new has been inaugurated. Jesus has been enthroned in heaven. His spirit has been left to fill the earth and the kingdom of God is going to advance. The glory of Christ is going to expand. The church is going to increasingly so represent the inheritance which God is offering, the Father is offering to his son. That the church of many colors, the church of many languages, the church of many creeds, The church of many histories and many backgrounds is all going to come under one head, under one creed, under one Christ to the glory of his name. And on Pentecost, we see the inauguration of that very moment. And today, that's what we get to be a part of. How is it that God is going to fulfill this promise to his son? 
is it that, that God is going to bring about so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved? How is it that God is going to bring that about? He is going to use his church. He is going to use his disciples. He is going to use his people. He is going to use you and he's going to use me. You see, the spirit of God came and indwelt us so that we can now build the kingdom of God. That's what Acts 1.8 teaches us. Acts 1.8 says this, but you will receive, and I think this, by the way, is kind of the, the thesis statement of the book of Acts. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and the ends of the earth. That is, you are receiving the power of the Holy Spirit to dwell in you so that you can go to every nation on earth and build up Jesus' kingdom. What we are witnessing in Acts chapter 2 is the reversal of the curse of Babel. You familiar with the curse of Babel, Genesis 9, Genesis 10? The, the, the nations come together in a great council and they conspire to build a tower in which they will get to God. And God seeing them in their arrogance, God seeing them in their pride, curses them. And he disperses them and he gives everyone a different language so that no longer can they understand one another. No longer can a, a council of this kind come together because now there are, there are, are, are blocks and obstacles that, that disable them from doing so. And yet what do we see here in Acts 2? We see the Spirit inaugurating the reversal of that curse. We see the Spirit now speaking with a language in which all people can understand and all people can hear and all people can be reunited under the Godhead, under the Christ, brought together by the Spirit himself. You see, what he is doing is he is fulfilling, this is a picture of the Father fulfilling a promise to the Son. We're fixing to get excited about something, all right? We're fixing to get excited. Y'all ready to get excited about something? If y'all don't get excited about it, I'm gonna get excited about it. I've been excited about this for a long time, all right? Psalm chapter two, verse eight. God makes this promise to the Son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Y'all not excited yet? Here's what I mean. The Father has promised the Son that his inheritance will be the nations. The Father has promised the Son that for his obedience, that according to his work and his redeeming plan and his atonement on the cross and his resurrection victory, that his inheritance will be that God will give him a throne from which he will reign over all the nations. That God will build a church, in other words, as every tongue, every tribe, every nation gather together to constantly, perpetually, eternally proclaim the glories of Christ, to love Christ, to enjoy Christ, to delight in Christ, and from whom Christ will find delight himself. Here's how these two things come together. God has given you the very spirit of God himself so that you can take part in presenting to Christ his inheritance. Do you see this? That you, 
now get to go out with, with, with resurrection victory, with spirit-given power to go to the ends of the earth as witnesses for Christ to then bring people into the church so that you can now present them to Christ. You are used by God himself to present the Son with his own inheritance. See, when we think about motivations for evangelism, all of my life, I've always heard this, and, I, and this is not bad, but all of my life, I've always heard this. What about the soul of that man? What, what, what about the condemnation of that man? What, what about the fact that that man is at odds with God and that man is going to be destroyed? And brothers and sisters, well, we should give credence to the plight of man and to the burden of their souls. Oh, but brothers and sisters, what I've also been told is I have nothing to give to God. But what the Spirit has done is the Spirit has given me the ability to now go to the Savior that I love, the Savior that I find delight in, and present Him with a gift. I have something to give to Jesus because the Spirit has done it in me. I can go to the nations and I can call people to Christ. And as many as I bring, I can take, I can offer to Jesus. Jesus, here is yet another one. Jesus, here is another one to be formed into your image. Here is another one to proclaim your glories for all of eternity. Jesus, here is your inheritance. It is a delight to give someone that you love a gift. And what is it that we can give to Christ? On our own, nothing. By our own strength, nothing. By our own wisdom, nothing. Oh, but brothers and sisters, filled with the glory of God, filled with the Spirit of God, filled with the power of God, you can give Jesus himself his very inheritance. Let us give to Christ his inheritance. Church, we must go. We must go to Swaziland that we can take the Swazi people and present them to Christ. We must go to Salt Lake that we can take those formerly Mormon deceived people and present them to Christ as an inheritance. We must go to Lodge Creek and we must go to Mexico that we can take them and present them to Christ as an inheritance. We must go to our neighbor and go to our children and go to our friends and go to our husband and go to our wife that we can take them and we say, Jesus, I love you. Accept this from me by your spirit, by your strength. This is to your glory. Brothers and sisters, we get to take part in the divine work of the Godhead, the Father giving the Son an inheritance through the power of the Spirit. We get to be a part of that. God has resolved to build his kingdom with us. Let us not lay down on our work. Let us not lay down on our delight. Because I'm telling you, we've only tasted a fraction of the joy that is available to us in Christ according to the Holy Spirit. See, this day, what I want us to be known as is this. Pentecostal Baptists. I mean it. I want us to be Pentecostal Baptists. I don't mean that I want us to start a new denomination. I don't mean that I necessarily want us to jump over pews or anything like that. What I mean is, is I want us to stop living ordinary lives. I want us to stop living lives by our wisdom and by our strength and start living lives with 
Pentecostal power. May God break the dams of unbelief that we've built up with our cold logic and passionless religion so that we might experience an outpouring of his spirit on us. May God awaken our hearts with Pentecostal power for a Pentecostal mission for God and Christ's glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us go to the Lord together in prayer.